you're probably aware that we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy is a book about the church and in particular it's about a particular church in Ephesus and over this church is a man named Timothy who's been set in charge of it. Now, Paul has written to Timothy to tell him how a church ought to behave. Have a look with me just there at chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Chapter 3, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You see, obviously in Paul's mind and in God's mind, the church is a big deal. It's not just a club, it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church and what happens in church is really important. But as we read through 1 Timothy, we see that this church, this church in Ephesus, is anything but a pillar and foundation of the truth. It's nothing like it. In fact, it's got real problems all the way up to the top with its leaders who are teaching the wrong thing. They're false teachers. In chapter 1, we've seen that they're legalists. That is, they're people who want to enforce laws on people, who want to bring back the old Jewish system of life and enforce that on Christians who are free in Christ. In fact, in chapter 4, we get a hint that they've gone even further than that, that they're even putting demands on them that even the Old Testament law didn't, that they're almost becoming monastic, like monks, stopping them from even marrying. So there's real problems with teaching in this church. But they're not just false teachers because with false teaching as we so often see in scripture and I think in life, we see false living, godlessness. What's really interesting when you go through 1 Timothy is you see this recurring phrase that the false teachers not only reject the truth but a good conscience. So in 1 verse 6, the false teachers have wandered away from a good conscience. In 1 verse 19, they've rejected faith and a good conscience. We can see here in chapter 4 verse 2 that they're described as hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now let's not get them confused. They're not just people who are mistaken, honestly. These people are on the wrong track. Their consciences are seared. They're not only false teachers but godless. These teachers are demolishing the pillar and foundation of the truth, making the gospel sound disgraceful. And that's why Timothy has been sent this letter, to combat them. I think when we come to this letter, so many people think that it's just a manual of church governance. Oh, what do I do about electing elders? Well, I'll turn to 1 Timothy. What do I do about this issue? Well, I'll, look, I'll turn to 1 Timothy. We think it's like the instruction manual that you get and which men never read in the DVD container. You know, it's that kind of a thing. It's just a manual of instruction. But it's nothing of the sort. When I was at law school, I decided to study international humanitarian law because I thought that would just be so helpful in a firm. And when I did, I studied the, the, the law of armed conflict. And in the law of armed conflict, there are very set rules about what a soldier can and cannot do. They're called the rules of engagement. And one of my lecturers, who also happened to be a JAG in the Navy, that is a naval lawyer, actually brought along some of them. The rules of engagement are a little A5 piece of paper folded over. They're laminated so that in any weather they'll survive. And they can be tucked into a a soldier or a naval officer's coat and be pulled out at any time 
They're ready there for combat so that the officer knows what to do. 1 Timothy is the rules of engagement. What is Timothy to do when he comes into combat with the false teachers? And that's what we're going to be looking at. So for my first point. Well, the first point is this. But the basic rule is this. Fight the false teachers on the grounds they fight on. And what are those grounds? Well, we've already seen it. Teaching and godliness. Where they teach badly, Timothy is to teach well. Where they live badly, Timothy is to live well. We saw that last week. Where in in chapter 4, in the first half of chapter 4, we saw that Timothy was to train himself for this combat. He's to train himself, in verse 6, the truths of the faith, doctrine. And in verse 7, he's to train himself to be godly. But we see here tonight that he's not just to train himself in these things. Look with me at verse 11 there. Let me read it out for you. He's to train himself in these things, but also command and teach these things. He's to command and teach these things to others. And you can see that there in verses 12 and 13 and 14. First up, it's godliness. Look at verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. He's to be an example to the congregation of godliness. Where the false teacher's consciences are seared, his is to be spotless. But it's not just godliness. It's also his teaching. Look at verses 13 and 14. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He is to preach. And he's not just to preach whatever comes into his head. You see there very clearly that he is to explain Scripture, to devote himself to the reading and explanation of Scripture. It's in such a contrast to the false teachers. In chapter 1, right from the get-go, we've seen that what they teach is just pointless. Myths, endless genealogies that do nothing but stir up trouble. Timothy is to teach from the Scriptures. That's what he's to do. Timothy is to devote himself to godliness and to good teaching. He has to give himself wholly to them. You can see that there in verse 15. Now, it must have been very tempting, I think, for Timothy to seek to ignore that, to get around that problem. Because Paul is calling him to really very direct combat. It would be so easy for him and so easy for us to ignore the problems, for him to focus on the church in Ephesus' strong points and downplay its weaknesses. But the emphasis of this passage is clear. He can't do that. Instead, he is to unleash against them the blunt, brutal force of the entirety of his armoury, Christ and his life in him. Martin Luther really understood that. He said this, if I, pro- if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides, 
is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. It's so true, isn't it? There's no point being brave on a battlefield where you're not being attacked. Rather, you need to race to the breach. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. False teachers are poisoning this church with bad doctrine and bad living. And so that is where Timothy is to race and combat it with good teaching and good living. And it's so important. It's so important here because we see in verse 16, people's salvation is on the line. Let me read to you verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. You see, bad teaching and godlessness in a church won't just weaken it. They will destroy it. And that's not just a biblical principle, although it is. You see it happening. I used to go to a church in in Hobart, in Sandy Bay, that's where I come from, I'm from Tasmania, and uh, I was going along and and the preacher seemed good. I was there for, I suppose, three years. He had all the boxes ticked. He was more college educated, so that was that box ticked, and he was not a bad preacher and that was good, and he was a nice guy, pastoral, all that kind of stuff. Now, it just so happened that after about three years I left the church to go to another, not because of any particular fault with that church, I hadn't seen any, but because, just for other reasons. About six months afterwards I found out that he had been having an affair with one of the girls who held up the front. She was about 30 years his junior. He had been married for 40 years or so. He had several kids. And the church just imploded. The church split. People lost their faith because of it. Because they'd seen one of their leaders who was supposed to be watching his life and doctrine closely and he didn't. You see, it's no wonder here, is it, that Paul encourages people to look to Timothy to see his progress. Because if you're not seeing progress in godliness, in doctrine, in a teacher's life, something is perhaps awry. No, instead, Timothy is to be godly and a good teacher because he wants to save his hearers. And in this book, that is the name of the game. Salvation is where it's at. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Or 3, rather. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. God wants people to be saved and he's not stingy about it either. He wants all people to be saved. Now if God wants all people to be saved, if God has given his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for people, for the people in Ephesus, for that matter for you and I, who is Timothy to stand in its way? He must be about proclaiming the gospel in what he does and what he says. And that's why I really think here at Church by the Bridge that good teaching and good living has got to be a focus. See, 1 Timothy is written to a leader. That's true. But I think there are also applications for us as a church. Timothy here is commanded here to teach this and to command this to his listeners. So if it's good to teach, it's good for us to listen. Now, as I said, I come from Tassie and so I've come in from the outside And it's really interesting seeing a new church from this perspective. 
A part of me almost thinks so this church is being at something of a crossroads. There's been amazing growth here over the past two years. I don't know, you may be as new here as I am, but it's grown in two years from 40 to 200. Not only has there been great growth, it's got a good reputation. We're something of the flavour of the month, I get the impression. But to keep those things, that good reputation and that numerical growth, we will be tempted to do all sorts of things that don't accord with good doctrine and a good life. We'll be tempted to concentrate on externals, that we make sure that our presentation is slick and professional and attractive to others. Perhaps we'll be wanting to concentrate on our demographic, that we only reach the wealthy, young, beautiful professional. Perhaps we'll be tempted to get into business models whereby we always want to make sure that we're at the leading edge, the cutting edge of some new church growth system. Now there are none of those things that are wrong in themselves but it's when they begin to take the place of true values like integrity and generosity and purity that the wheels begin to fall off when we're tempted to be cool rather than tempted to be good. Isn't that something we need to think about? as we continue over the next few years? Isn't that something we need to constantly be coming back to the compass of Christ, to constantly be coming back to the scriptures and have ourselves reorientated to see where we're headed? Because we'll also be tempted to tone down the teaching. Whenever you're onto a good thing and you're seeing numbers and there's a great vibe, the last thing you want to do is turn people away. And so to stop from turning people away, we'll start dumbing things down. We won't want to ruffle feathers in the church we'll start saying things or not saying things because we can think of half a dozen people who will pull us up afterwards. Or we'll start being soft on sin and the holiness of God so that we don't turn away newcomers. But that won't save our hearers and our watchers according to this, will it? It won't save them. Good teaching and good living are what proclaim the gospel. And that's what we want for this church, isn't it? Isn't that the rep we want? People who love people and people who are true because it's that that makes Jesus look good and that is 100% what we have got to be about. But that brings me to my second and last point because we've seen here that Timothy's rules of engagement are clear. He is to teach the truth and to be godly. And now Paul shows him how that's to take effect in the particular context of the church family. So firstly, even though the rules are so important to carry out that Timothy shouldn't even let the fact that his youth get in its way, you can see that there in verse 12, uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. He can't even let his youth, relative youth, get in the way of proclaiming these things. At the same time, it doesn't mean that you treat everyone exactly the same in a church, does it? Look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers and, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You see, the church is a family and you don't treat everyone in a family exactly the same. I don't treat my dad the way I treat my brother, which I'm sure my dad is profoundly grateful. You treat people differently according to their age. I mean, it's particularly noticeable in Australia with older men and women, isn't it? 
As a younger man, I naturally want to, in my egalitarian Australian society, I want to go up to people and say, G'day, mate, how are you, cobber, to someone who's three times my age? Well, it's probably not really very... Yeah, who's 87? And it's probably not very... Uh, sort of a godly attitude, is it? I mean, if someone's just met you, you don't just bowl up to them and just treat them like you're another mate at uni or at work. It's good to be respectful for people. And I think that reflects really well in our wider culture because very few other places in our culture do that. So when newcomers come into church and they see that we relate to one another respectfully and sensitively, that makes the gospel attractive. That's part of living out the godliness that Timothy's been commanded here to teach. It's exactly the same, I think, with younger men and women. We're to treat everyone as brothers and sisters. Now, you don't want to misread this. You don't want to think that treating younger men and women as sisters and brothers means that you can sort of pull your face at them across the table when your parents aren't looking or that you can bury them under the beanbags and sit on them so they're like in a little dark corduroy hell, as happened to me when I was small. It doesn't mean that when your sister's sort of lying down on the sofa reading a book that you can sort of pass by, pass wind on their head and then run off, as I have never done when I was 10. Uh, it just means purity and you can see that there with absolute purity. That's how you treat them. Now you may say to me, well look Des, you know, it's really easy for you, isn't it, to be saying, uh, you know, treat younger women as uh, sisters and younger men as brothers. You know, you're from Tassie. They are your brothers and sisters. <laughs> you, you know, or maybe a cousin. <laughs> but the point's clear here, isn't it? I mean, the standard here is Purity. Treat them like brothers and sisters. It's actually not a bad rule of thumb, I think, for dating couples. Treat them like brothers and sisters. If you're going out with someone, are you being appropriate? Well, how do I know? Well, here's a rule of thumb. Would I think that about or do that with my brother or sister? That's a really easy test. If the answer is yes, it's okay. If the answer is... Then the answer is no. Now, it's only a rule of thumb, of course. I mean, you, you wouldn't hold hands with your sister. I mean, that would be a bit weird. Uh, but you may well still hold hands uh, with your partner. But it's a rule of thumb, isn't it? And maybe a helpful one. Purity is important. Singles. We need to think about exactly the same things, don't we? How we relate to one another here at church. Because there are a lot of us. I may not physically be doing anything untoward towards someone but I might be flirting with them. I might be leading them on. I might be thinking things in the privacy of my own head which I'd be pretty embarrassed if they turned up on the PowerPoint. How am I relating to people here? Am I actually relating to people as brothers and sisters should relate to each other? Because relating like that in a godly way, makes the gospel very attractive. I remember some friends of mine were married down in Tasmania, Damon and Tinica, and it transpired after their wedding that the kiss they gave one another on that day was in fact their first for either of them. It's so sweet. Now, of course, it's not a requirement. None of this is about rules. But doesn't that leave an impact with you? It was the talking point for the rest of the reception, I gather. 
that these people treated one another in godliness, in purity. What an impression that gave about the power Jesus has over people's lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a community where visitors could say, they really cared about me. You know, I'm a young woman and when I came in here, the men weren't just chasing me. They didn't look at my chest. They didn't act inappropriately towards me. They cared for me as a person. Or for young men who can say that, you know, they're not just flirting. That young women aren't talking about men amongst themselves behind the men's backs. You see, it's important to be godly and it's an outworking of it. But secondly, just as, should we, just as we should treat those in our church like they're our family, we should also care amongst the, about those who have lost their real families, widows. You can see that there in chapter 5, verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. See, widows in the New Testament world uh, were destitute. There was no Centlink, there's no social support and if they don't have a husband and they don't have a family to look after then they're lost. Now the rest of this passage really defines what a widow in need is all about and I think there's a few points. First of all, if they can be supported by their families then they should be. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. And they should do so for a number of reasons. First of all, because they owe them. Their parents raised them. But there's also a practical reason. Verse 16 says that if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. It's just practicality. The church can't support everyone. But I think most importantly, there's a theological reason behind it. Look at verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, to abandon your family when they're most in need is just totally inconsistent with the good news about Jesus. I think about my gran. She's now dead, but she lived in a granny flat with my unbelieving aunt and uncle, lovely people over in Dublin. She lived there for 20 years as a result of that, it meant that my aunt and uncle could never travel overseas. They could maybe go over to France for a weekend, but they could never really come and visit us here in Australia. They could never do all sorts of things because they devoted themselves to caring for my grandmother. What a great example that is. But how much more should I as a Christian and we as Christians care for our families when unbelievers do that? Now the widow may not have any family. Well, in that case, I think the passage says that they should marry if they can. Now some of them won't be able to marry. They'll just be too old. You can see that there in chapter, nine, uh, in chapter 5 verse 9. Now no widow um, may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Some people won't be able to marry. And they should be, so long as they've lived a godly life, they should be supported. However, younger women, according to this, should be able to marry and so they shouldn't be supported. Look at me in verse 11. As for younger widows, don't put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, 
they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and uh, going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Now it's a tricky passage but I think the basic line through it is this. The verses make the point that widows are not just liabilities to be cared for or doled out to various people. They are people and God wants all people to be saved and to be godly. And these verses really stress that point. Now they are difficult as I said but I think the key is to understand that if you look in verse 11 it translates a word as sensual desires for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ they want to marry. The word itself is actually just desires and I don't think it's referring to sensual desires i.e. the perfectly normal and God-given desire for sex. I think it's referring to the desire to lead a self-indulgent life. I think that for a couple of reasons. In this book we've already seen a number of people, not necessarily widows, but a number of women who are doing precisely that, going after money and good looks and clothing and whatever. But furthermore, even more particularly, we see in chapter verse 5 and 6 of this chapter two widows compared, or rather contrasted. The widow who is really in need, verse 5, and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So in verse 11 uh, and onwards, I think we see that idea developed. When widows whose desire for self-indulgence overcomes their commitment to Christ, they want to marry. Why do they want to marry? Also, I think it's they can continue their lifestyle. The going around from house to house, being idle, being busybodies. So what's Paul's answer? Well, they're to marry. But they're not just to marry. They're to marry into godly relationships and to live a godly lifestyle, to raise kids, to manage their households, to not give the enemy any opportunity to slander them. Now, of course, what it means for a woman to be godly is contextual. It's not saying that to be a godly woman you have to marry or that you have to have kids or that you have to run a household. But the point in this context is clear. God's ultimate concern for people is to be godly. Widows are to be godly in how they behave. Families are to be godly in the way they care for people. The church is to be godly in looking after those who've fallen through the cracks. And it's also that people might hear and see the gospel and believe it. You see, we should care for those amongst us who are weak in need of help, shouldn't we? The very nature of the gospel demands it. And it's the gospel preached and lived out in our church that saves people. And God wants to save people. So why shouldn't we? That's the challenge that's put before us tonight. Let me pray.